You know as well as I do that the, that the subject of healing, divine healing is a, uh, well, I started to say major controversy. I don't know if the word major is, uh, is the best way to describe it, but it's certainly a controversy in the body of Christ because um, you've got so many people, well-meaning Christians, good, good people, sincere people, people that love God that have died sick. And as a result, um, uh, a lot of other Christians, people that have been familiar with them, maybe loved ones or just people they've been acquainted with, have, uh, have used that experience to develop what they believe God's doctrine or the, the appropriate doctrine of healing should be. And as a result, a lot of the body of Christ has come away with the idea that God can heal, but you never know if he's going to. Um, there's a problem with that. Number one, it's either true or it's not. And the Bible says it's not. So the problem, number one, is that's wrong. But the second problem, the second issue is that uh, the Bible says that the majority of people that were healed in Jesus' ministry, now Jesus had the Spirit of God without measure. He was the Son of God here on the earth. And the Bible says the majority of people that were healed in Jesus' ministry were healed on their own faith. Now, I know that's contrary to what a lot of the church would like to believe. A lot of the church would like to believe that Jesus, because he was the Son of God, just went around indiscriminately healing people. But that's not the case. The Bible says that even the people that came to Jesus, the first and foremost thing that he looked for was faith. And even in situations where the, the, there was a manifestation of the Spirit of God, John chapter 5 is a good example of this. Even in places where there was a manifestation of the Spirit of God, meaning God initiated the healing, only one person was healed out of the multitude, the five porches full of people that were there. And the first thing Jesus asked the guy that wound up getting healed by a manifestation of the Holy Ghost was, will you be made whole? First thing he's looking for is faith. Well... If Jesus required faith on the part of the people in his day to receive healing, how much more true is that going to be for us who have the spirit without or who have the spirit by measure? He had the spirit without measure. He had all the Holy Ghost there was. We have a part of the Holy Ghost. You've got a part. I've got a part. Together, we've got the fullness of what Jesus had. How much more so is faith going to be necessary in our day? And as a result, um, uh, because of wrong doctrine, because uh, people establish doctrine based on experiences and, and, uh, and, and man's idea rather than seeing what the Bible has to say or accepting what they see it has to say, then as a result, you've got a lot of people that in the body of Christ that are really struggling. They want to be healed, but they don't know what to believe. Well, the problem with that is that you can't receive something you can't believe for. The Bible says faith is necessary to receive, and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. If you're hearing that you don't know if God's going to heal you, then the first voice you're going to hear is the devil speaking to your mind saying you're not one of the ones his will is to heal. Well, if you can't overcome that, you can't receive your healing. Now, I just want to talk to you about some of the nuts and bolts, some of the nitty-gritty things that I deal with as a pastor. And some of the criticisms we get, and I get letters from time to time about people saying, "How how dare you preach that healing belongs to everybody? Well, the answer to that is pretty simple because the Bible says so. But obviously not everybody agrees. And it's always followed up. Anytime I get a letter like that or an email or something like that, it's always followed up with my dear Aunt Susie or somebody that they know or this person in our church was the best Christian in the world and they died of cancer. So basically what they're saying is, and and I, I assume this is a common thought because I get it a lot, I assume that it's a common thought that because somebody knows somebody or heard of somebody that was a good Christian, sincere Christian, somebody that loved God, that didn't get healed, then that means God doesn't heal everybody. Or God won't heal everybody, or healing doesn't belong to everybody. Well, let's see what the Bible says about that. Okay? Did you find Psalm 107 yet? Look at verse 20. 
We could back up and read some of the surrounding verses, but I want you to see verse 20. It says he, speaking of God, it said he sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Now, we could stay there for years. He sent his word and healed them. What is the Bible telling us? First and foremost, if you didn't take any other scripture, if you don't know of any other scripture in the Bible concerning healing, if you don't know anything else the Bible says, if you took this one verse of scripture, which if if this is not true, let's tear this page out. If this one scripture is true, then it tells you how you can get healed. It tells any person that chooses to read it and accept it and believe it. How they can get healed. They can get healed through the word. Anybody, everybody can get healed through the word. Why? Because he sent his word and healed them. It doesn't say he sent his word and healed some. It doesn't say he sent his word and those that he especially took a liking to got healed. It says he sent his word and healed them. Who is them? Them are those the word was sent to. Isn't that you? Doesn't the Bible belong to you? Well, it should. It's supposed to. He sent his word and healed them. Now notice the next part of the verse. It says, and delivered them from their destructions. I love that. And delivered them from their destructions. In other words, except for the word, they are on the path to destruction. He averted the destruction that was slated for their life. The path the, the, the roadway to destruction that they were traveling was averted by the word. Notice how deliverance came through the word. Notice how healing comes through the word. Now, we were right there in verse 20. Might as well read verse 21. It says, oh, that men would praise him for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Now, The writer of this psalm, we don't know who it was. It doesn't tell us. David wrote a lot of them. Solomon wrote some of them himself, at least according to the Bible. The Bible says Solomon wrote, uh, what was it, 3,000 psalms and 1,000 proverbs, or maybe it's the other way around. I'm not sure. So we don't know who it was that wrote this, but we can certainly accept that this was inspired by the Holy Ghost. Whoever the writer is was inspired by the Holy Ghost. So we might as well say this is the Holy Ghost speaking to us. Because whoever he's talking through, whoever the author is, is the Holy Ghost talking through them to get some information to us. And the Holy Ghost seemed to think it is important enough, credible enough, in verse 20, that he sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions for God to be praised for it. So if you didn't know anything else, if this was the only scripture we had, it tells you that God heals through his word He delivers through his word from destructions and men ought to praise God for his goodness. In other words, the sending of his word is proof that God is good. And that's worthy of praising it. Now turn with me over to Proverbs. uh, Proverbs chapter 1. We won't start in chapter 1, but we'll get to it. If the Bible is so clear, and and, and, folks, you've got to misread it to misunderstand If the Bible is so clear about healing belonging to anyone and everyone through the word. Notice there's no qualifier. It says he sent his word and healed them. In other words, the word of God is the healing agent for all of mankind. It's the method of healing for all of mankind. Now, that's not not the only way God heals. It's not the only way Jesus healed. It's the primary way he healed. He healed primarily through the spoken word. 
But if you didn't have any other, any other scripture, if you didn't have any other knowledge of God, you've got positive proof, according to the Holy Ghost, you've got positive proof that healing is available to anyone and everyone through the word. Well, then why did dear Aunt Susie, dear Sister Saint, whatever her name is, die sick? Well, let's look over at Proverbs. Proverbs is all about wisdom. The theme of the book of Proverbs is about wisdom. Now, the Bible says in, in Proverbs, it says that, well, maybe we ought to define our terms before we go further. Wisdom is the application of the word of God in your life. It's not the knowledge of the word. There's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. The Bible says wisdom rests in the heart of the man that has understanding or knowledge. It's one thing to know the word. It's another thing to be a doer of the word. James said, James chapter 1 and verse 22, he said, But be ye doers thereof, or doers of the word, not deceiving yourselves. A lot of people know the word, but they don't do it, and so they're self-deceived. It's not the knower of the word that is blessed. It's the doer of the word that's blessed. And to whatever degree he does the word, whatever degree he puts the word in practice in his life, whatever degree he applies the word in his life, that's the degree he's going to get the Bible benefits or what the word promises as a reality for himself. So wisdom is the application of the word of God. Now, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, the way to operate in wisdom is to put God's word first in your life. The fear of the Lord doesn't mean to be afraid like you're afraid of a snake or a scorpion or something like that. It means to have respect for. It means to give first place to. If I fear the Lord, then I put him first and his word first in every aspect of my life. If I fear my wife, then I listen to her instead of the word. You see what I'm saying? If my fear or respect for her or for my boss or what other people are going to think is greater than my fear of the Lord, then I'm going to live my life based on trying to make other people happy. But if the fear of the Lord is the greatest priority or is the greatest um, concern that I have in my life, then I'm going to listen to what God said. And the only way we know what God said is to read his word. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you don't know what the Bible says, you can't put the word in practice in your life. Now, the Bible says there are benefits to that. It says wisdom has length of days in one hand. It has riches and honor in the other hand. It says that the application of wisdom will bring health to your bones. It will bring healing to your body. The application of the word of God, according to Proverbs, and we could take any number of of scriptures to prove this throughout the book of Proverbs. That's not our point tonight. But the Bible tells us throughout the book of Proverbs that healing comes through through the application of wisdom. It comes through making wisdom a part of your daily life. Doing the word of God, in other words. You be a doer of the word. Proverbs chapter 4 says, my son, attend to my words. Verses 20 through 22. My son, attend to my words. What's he saying? He's saying, be wise. Put the word first place in your life. Attend unto my words. Incline your ear into my sayings. Let them not depart from before your eyes. For they, my words, are life unto those that find them in health to all their flesh. So it's saying the same thing Proverbs or, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Psalm 107 verse 20 said. He sent his word and healed them. He's saying if you'll be a doer of the word in your life, if you'll give the word first place in your life, it'll be health to your bones. So healing comes through the application of God's word. Proverbs proves that. But it does it not by talking about healing. It does it by talking about wisdom. Now, with that in mind, let me show you why many Christians die sick. You ready? Bible gives the answer. It's hard. It's not anything anybody wants to accept. But it's true nonetheless. Proverbs chapter 1. Let's start reading in... Well, let's just read in verse 20. Start in verse 20 and um, 
get the context of what's being said. Wisdom cries without. She utters her voice in the streets. In other words, it's not hard to find wisdom. It may be hard to find somebody who's willing to accept it. It may be hard to find somebody who's willing to apply the word of God to their lives to really be wise according to what the Bible says. But wisdom's easy to find. You got it sitting in your lap. All you have to do is choose to do it. So it says wisdom cries without. It's not hidden. In other words, the church knows where to find it. Whether they choose to or not, they know where to find it. Wisdom cries without. She utters her voice in the streets. One translation says uh, wisdom can be found in the marketplace. Thank God there's wisdom for finances in business too. She cries in the chief place of concourse. In the openings of the gates, in the city, she uttereth her words, saying, How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? And the scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Now notice what it's saying. It's saying wisdom is not just for something within the church. Wisdom is not designed to just use when we come to church within the four walls of the church building. Wisdom is designed for everyday life. And wisdom says, hey, stupid, how long are you going to say stupid? That's what these words mean. How long, you simple ones, that means stupid. Now, folks, whoever wrote Proverbs was inspired by the Holy Ghost or else let's tear the book out. There's no middle ground on this for me. It's either of the Holy Ghost, it's written by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, or it has no business being in the covers that say Holy Bible. Can we agree on that? Okay, then if we're agreeing on that, that we should keep it because it's inspired of the Holy Ghost, here's the Holy Ghost talking about wisdom. He's saying it's stupid to avoid it. That's not me. You know, I understand somebody told me the other day that there are people that just say, well, you know, that's just Pastor Mike. Look, this is not just Pastor Mike. This is the Holy Ghost saying it's stupid to ignore wisdom. How long are you going to keep that up? That's what this verse means. So clearly it shouldn't be a surprise to us that people ignore wisdom. It happened in the the day that the Bible was written. It's happened from the beginning of time. This, honestly... If we may be so bold, this was Adam and Eve's problem. They started off with wisdom and got stupid because they obeyed the devil instead of God. And that's what it says. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? And the scorners, how long are you going to delight in your scorning? And how long will you fools hate knowledge? That's what it's saying. Here's the answer. It says, turn you at my reproof. Here's wisdom speaking from the first person. Turn you at my reproof. In other words, correction. Change according to the correction that wisdom dictates. In other words, do what the Bible says. Don't keep hanging on to your old way of doing things. It's not working for you. Turn you at my reproof. Behold, if you'll just turn, if you'll just make the the, the fear of the Lord... At the beginning of wisdom. If you'll make wisdom the priority in your life. The Bible says wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, with all you're getting, get it. Should be your number one focus in life is to get wisdom. Comes only one way and that's through the word. And here's the, here's the Holy Ghost. He's saying if you'll turn at my instruction, if you'll turn at the places that I try to correct you, then here's the result. I will pour out my spirit unto you. Now you would think that that would be enough of a benefit that everybody would want to do that. Isn't it sad that that's not the case? 
Turn you at my reproof, and behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you, and I will make my words known unto you. In other words, they won't be just words on a page. They'll come alive in your life. The promises of Scripture will be realized in your life. You'll have what the Bible promises, in other words. Verse 24. Now, here's the negative side. And, folks, please notice this starts off in chapter 1. This is not chapter 30 after he's told you all the good things and all the blessings of wisdom and and here's all the good things that you can expect God to do for you. Chapter 1, because I've called and you refused. I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded. So not everybody's going to go for wisdom, are they? This is written for the people of God. Certainly it's Old Testament, it was written for the Jews, but it has just as much application to us because wisdom belongs to us through Jesus. The Bible says in, in 1 Corinthians 1.30, it says, Christ has made unto us wisdom. So it's just as much for us as it ever was for the Jews, right? It means we have a right to it. It means we have a responsibility for it. He said, because I have called and you refused. I have stretched out my hand and no man regards. But you have set at naught all my counsel. Well, how much of the church does that apply to? The Bible says one thing, but here's what we think instead. Because you've set at naught all my counsel and would have none of my reproof or correction, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear comes. When your fear comes as desolation and your destruction comes as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish cometh upon you, Then shall they call upon me, but I'll not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. You know what the Bible is saying? Here's the Holy Ghost saying the best time to get wisdom is before you need it. Don't wait till you get in a crisis and try to find it. It's the wrong time to look. And we'll finish reading this, but I want to stop here long enough to to apply this to what you and I both know takes place in the body of Christ concerning the subject of healing. We've, I've already told you my experience. I'm sure you've got other experiences. If, we, if everybody told their experiences, we'd be here till daybreak. Talking about dear sister, saint, whoever, this wonderful Christian, wonderful person who died of sickness. We've got a situation right now where there's somebody that we're acquainted with, not in our church, but a good friend of somebody that was in our church that here this young mother, young kids, she's developed a brain tumor and the doctors have given her 18 months to live. And everybody in the world is going berserk over this. Oh, my goodness, how could God let this happen? Now, folks, this is hard. It's hard to say, and I wouldn't want to look somebody in the face and say, here's what's going on. But you need to know what the truth is. And here's the truth. I wonder how many of those dear saints of God refused the wisdom of the Word of God concerning healing those that died of sickness. I wonder how many of those refused the counsel of the word of God concerning healing. I wonder how many of them refused the truth that he sent his word and healed them. Now, I have no doubt that the rest of this is true where it says when they get in trouble, when people face destruction, then they call out for God. But notice it says God doesn't answer then. That's not the way he answers. Why? Because he sent his word and healed them. Healing comes through the word of God, not because you get in such desperate situation that finally now you'll say, okay, well, no matter what anybody says, I want to be healed.
I wouldn't know how to quantify this, but I'm afraid that too many Christians fall into that category. Well, why did dear saints, child of God, die of sickness? I wonder if it falls into this category. Now, I'm not their judge. It's not up to me to say. And if it's a secret thing between them and the Lord, the Bible says the secret things belong to the Lord. But I know God. And I know he sent his word and healed. Healed all of mankind. He provided healing for all of mankind. Now, there's another side to this. There are a lot of dear saints that did their best to receive healing and just failed to receive. They ran out of time. They may have been in faith. They may have died in faith. And there's nothing wrong with dying in faith. Yeah, I heard I had somebody. I was talking about this in a funeral one time. Somebody in the church, and they um, there was another minister that was taking part in the in the funeral service. Friend of theirs as well. And and uh, and so I I said some things, and and I said this person died in faith. As near as as I have ability to say, they were believing God for their healing. I think they just ran out of time. Folks, you can run out of time. Especially if you start late in the game, just like this is talking about. And this person did. And I said, I don't have any doubt that Jesus welcomed them into heaven and commended them for their faith. They died in faith. Well, afterwards, after the funeral, this uh, this preacher, older fella, he said, you're the bravest preacher I ever saw. I thought, what in the world are you talking about? He said, to stand up and say that somebody died in faith. And I thought, well, all the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11 died in faith. That's the only way you want to go, isn't it? I mean, I sure don't want to die any other way. And God judges things not by the natural result. He judges things by your heart. If I'm in faith and run out of time, God counts it as me as a winner. Man looks at it as if they died before they received their healing, and before their healing was manifested in their flesh, then, oh, there's a faith failure. That may not be the case at all. Be careful that we don't judge things after the flesh. God does it. So here's talking about wisdom. Said, then they shall call upon me. Well, but let me back up. Verse 25. Because, but you have set not all my counsel and have none of my reproof. The word reproof means correction. It's the same word translated discipline throughout scripture. Well, the Bible said the Lord disciplines or chastises those that he loves. Yeah, he does. Do you know how he does? Through his word. Not through circumstance. Not through tragedy. God's not the author of tragedy. He's not the author of, of destruction. That's the devil's territory. God disciplines. He chastises us through his word. He gives us the opportunity for wisdom and the reproof of wisdom, the reproof of the word, the correction of the word, so that we can get over into wisdom and operate in the blessings of God. That's the only way he he disciplines us. The only way that it happens. First Timothy chapter 3, 16, verse 16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for instruction, for correction, for reproof in righteousness. In other words, the only way God is ever going to discipline you, the only way God is ever going to chastise you is through his word. Boy, and sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'd rather have a beating than the discipline of the word. But that's what he's saying. Because you refuse my instruction, you refuse the discipline of the word, and would have none of my reproof, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear comes. Man, that sounds hard, doesn't it? But it's true. When your fear comes as desolation and your destruction comes as a whirlwind, I wonder if that would include sickness. Sickness. 
When distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I'll not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For, here's why, for that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. In other words, they rejected the word. They rejected the scripture. They would have none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore, please notice verse 31. Therefore, when you reject the word, here's the end result. Therefore, shall they eat the fruit of their own way. And be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them. And the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from fear of evil. Now, folks, at this point, please don't fall asleep. Because if we just leave it here, it's going to be like, well, okay, maybe I didn't start soon enough. The devil's going to take advantage of people and they're going to say, well, maybe you didn't start soon enough. Maybe you rejected wisdom too long. And so there's no hope for you. But remember what we just read. As a matter of fact, turn back with me to Psalm 107. God's not against you. He's he's for you. He's on your side. He wants you to receive wisdom. He wants you to receive your healing through the word. Let's read the context now of Psalm 107. Verse 17. Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, are afflicted. I, I, I hate to admit this, but I've fallen into that category. I've qualified for this verse of Scripture more times than I'd like to admit. And most of the time, people are in the situations they're in because they've been foolish. I'm always amazed at people in financial trouble. They spent years spending money like drunken sailors, and then they can't understand why they're in such debt. Well, duh. They've shown no discipline whatsoever in their finances, and now they don't understand why they can't get ahead. It goes back to the same thing where wisdom is concerned. Wisdom tells you how to handle money. Same thing's true where, finance, where uh, healing is concerned, too. A lot of times people have rejected the Word of God, and so they've just gone along with the world. They're operating as the unsaved. Even though they're saved, even though heaven's their, their final destination, they're operating as the unsaved instead of taking the Word of God to ward off the devil's attacks. And in many cases, these things have become long-term chronic conditions. And it's like, well, I don't understand why God has allowed this. God has allowed it because you refused wisdom. Because you were, you qualified, just like I have in times past, we qualified to be a fool according to what the Holy Ghost said. Fools because of their transgressions and because of their iniquities are afflicted. Their soul abhors all manner of meat. Here's the rejection of wisdom. Their soul abhors all manner of meat and they draw near to the gates of death. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saves them out of their distresses. Now, if you compare the two things, if you just read Psalm 107, then why would we not come away with the idea that, well, why should we really apply wisdom to our lives? If we get in trouble, we cry out to God, and then he saves us and he heals us, and that's the end result. And that seems to be the way too many Christians, in my opinion, too many Christians are trying to live. I don't have anything to do with the Word. I don't want to live with the disciplined life that the Word says I should. I just want to be the kind of Christian everybody else is. And then when I get in trouble, I want God to bail me out. Well, what kind of faith would, would be required for that? That'd be kind of like a spare tire on a car, wouldn't it? I don't want to take care of my tires. I just want to make sure that if one goes flat, I've got something that will get me over the hump. 
Folks, the Bible doesn't say to use faith like a spare tire when you need it and when you're in real trouble. It says the just shall live by faith. That means you're going to have to live by the word. So if we just read Psalm 107, we'd say, well, what's the big deal? God will heal anybody when they get in trouble. All they have to do is cry unto him. He, he sent his word and healed them and delivers them from their distresses. But please notice that healing still, even in the dire, critical circumstances in Psalm 107, healing still comes through the word. In other words, there's still got to be a, a, a paradigm shift from somebody rejecting the word to somebody accepting the word. And you know as well as I do that there's a lot more to accepting the word than just calling out and saying, God, I'm in trouble. Bail me out. I haven't found that prayer to be too effective. Have you? But if you look at just Proverbs 1, it's like, well, boy, God seems to be real hard about this. If you don't get in at just the right time in just the right way, too bad for you. Wisdom stands back and laughs while you circle the toilet drain. While you're flushed down the tubes here, <laughs> you provide a real laugh for heaven. Well, you can see there's a balance on both ends, can't you? God expects you to live according to wisdom by putting his word first, but he'll even save you when you're at the critical point. Turn with me over to John chapter 9. Now let's talk about how you shift and make that shift at the critical point. Does this make any sense to anybody? Now, folks, you understand that if we were having a healing crusade, I would not be teaching this way. If our plans were to, to lay hands on the sick and inspire people in their faith, and um, I'm sorry, I told you John chapter 9, I meant Mark chapter 9. If my plan was to inspire you in faith and that we were going to see uh, a healing service where the anointing of God would break the yoke, I wouldn't be talking to you according to wisdom. But healing school is not a, a healing uh, crusade. We're here week after week after week. And it's a, it's a funny thing because uh, healing evangelists a lot of times can come in, blow in, blow up, and blow out. You know? They come in, make all kinds of statements and all kinds of things and, and inspire people's faith. People come, have la hands laid on them. You get some results, some miracles type things will take place, but then not everybody receives. And then afterwards, the healing evangelist is gone, and we're left with the people that didn't get anything. What happened? What's wrong with me? That's not what these healing school services are. This is healing school. That means we're here week after week after week. We're going to deal with the same thing next week that we dealt with last week. The person that comes tonight and for whatever reason doesn't receive their healing, we're going to be here next week to help you to get it. As a result, I've got a responsibility to tell you the whole story. Not just one side of it. That's not to say the healing evangelists do the wrong thing. It's just that their side of the coin is to get people inspired in faith. My job as a pastor is to teach you how things work so that you can live victoriously in your life. I'm not trying to inspire you for a service. I'm trying to teach you how to apply the word of God in your life from here on. Mark chapter 9, fascinating story in Jesus' ministry. Um, Jesus is um, with his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, at the mountain of transfiguration. He comes back, verse 14, and when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, what question are you with them? And one of the multitude answered, 
and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which has a dumb spirit. I think they're all dumb, but this one kept the boy from talking. And wheresoever he teareth him, or wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth, and he gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. So apparently this, uh, this evil spirit, the presence of this evil spirit, causes this young boy to have uh, some kind of seizures, some kind of fits, and, and things like that. Now, how in the world would they know that the disciples couldn't cast him out? Doesn't that presuppose that they tried and failed? Otherwise, he would have said, I, you know, I, and I saw that you weren't here, and so I was waiting for you to, get, to do something about this. They didn't try anything. They said that they could, but I wouldn't let them because I want the real guy. Well, that's not what he said. It doesn't say, and they were just about to try to cast this spirit out, but thankfully you're here. We have more confidence in you. That's not what it says. It says, I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. That means they tried and failed. Well, that must have really boosted the father's faith. Why would he ask the disciples to do it to begin with? Folks, there's only one answer to this. The Bible says that Jesus, at the beginning of his of calling the disciples, it says that he delivered unto them. He gave his disciples authority to cast out evil spirits and overall and to heal all manner of sickness and disease. They had the same authority to cast out devils as Jesus had because Jesus gave them his authority. They had the same power over sickness and disease that Jesus had because Jesus delegated his power over sickness and disease to them. How would this father know that? It wasn't in their newsletter, their monthly newsletter. How are they going to know? How's the father going to know? There's only one way that they would know, and that is it's either widespread that the disciples have this kind of power, everybody knows, which that's certainly not the case. We don't see any evidence of that in any of the other writings, the gospel writer, uh, the gospel accounts, or any other accounts of healing that even Mark writes about. That couldn't have been the case. The only other option, the only other possibility, is that the disciples, when they, when the father found out Jesus wasn't there, the disciples said, "Don't worry. He delegated us authority to cast out evil spirits, just like he can. We'll take care of this." Well, that must have boosted his faith. He must have thought, wow, this is great. I came, saw Jesus wasn't here. They told me he wasn't here. I got disappointed. But now I find out they can do the same thing. This is great. Then they try and fail, and he thinks, my goodness, what's going on? So this guy's on a roller coaster with his faith. So Jesus answered him. Everybody say him. Verse 19, Jesus answered him. He did not turn to the disciples and say, you bunch of worthless disciples. Why can't you do anything right? It does not say Jesus answered the disciples. It says Jesus answered the father. He answered him saying, oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him to me. In other words, Jesus is saying, we'll cut through some of the, the extra fluff here and just get right to the point. Jesus is saying to the Father, the problem is you don't have faith. The problem is you are faithless. Jesus just walks up. How would he know? Does he say, the Spirit of the Lord shows me the problem is your lack of faith? No. How does Jesus know the problem is uh, unbelief on the part of the Father? Because it's the only thing that stops the delegated power that he gave to his disciples from working. 
It's the only thing that stopped Jesus from being able to do mighty works, signs and wonders and miracles in Nazareth. Mark chapter 6, verse 5. And he could there in Nazareth do no mighty work. It doesn't say he wouldn't. It says he couldn't. Now, I know that blows a lot of people's idea about Jesus out of the water. Because Jesus was the Son of God. He's supposed to be able to do anything. But the Bible says in Mark chapter 6 that Jesus couldn't do any mighty works in Nazareth. It does not say that he wouldn't. It says that he could not. He was unable to have signs and wonders and miracles in Nazareth. Why? It says he marveled because of their unbelief. Verse 6 of Mark 6 goes on to say, and he marveled because of their unbelief. He tried to fix it by going through their synagogues teaching. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The only way you can overcome unbelief is teaching or giving the word of God to somebody so that they can change unbelief to faith. So Jesus knows instantly if it didn't work, there's only one thing that can keep it from working. It's a lack of faith. So here's your problem. And they brought him unto him, verse 20, and when he, the little boy, the evil spirit in him, when he saw Jesus, straightway the spirit tore him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And Jesus asked his father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And the father said, since he was a child. Now, folks, Jesus has just nailed this guy's situation. He said, the problem is a lack of faith. He does not condemn him. He does not put him down. He does not say, get out of here. You don't have any faith. He doesn't put the guy down. He says, look, the problem is unbelief. Now, if you said something like that nowadays, my goodness, people would just have a hissy fit and, and run around telling everybody this evil preacher judged me. But folks, there are certain things that make it work. They make the healing power of God work and certain things that keep the healing power from working. Why should it be some negative thing for us to identify here's the problem? It doesn't mean there's not a fix for the problem. It just means this is the problem, so now we need to attack this. That's all Jesus is doing. Jesus sees the result. He sees the seizure that this little boy has. Jesus, in my opinion, shows compassion for the Father. He sees this, and he's probably thinking... Man, he's, I don't know how long he's been looking at this. How often does this happen? He said it's been since he was a child. Jesus probably looks at this and says, well, no wonder he doesn't believe. He's been watching this day after day after day all this boy's life. He's still got to fix the problem. You've still got to change unbelief to faith if you're going to get results. Jesus is not putting the guy down. He's not mad at him. He's not condemning him. He's just saying this is the problem. The problem is a lack of faith. It won't work without, without faith being exercised. Why? Because he sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. If you want healing, it's going to take faith in the word. I don't care if you like that or not. That's the way it works. That's like saying, I don't think the lights ought to come. I don't think that turning the light switch on should be the only way that the lights come on. Well, who cares what we think? It's the way it works. I don't think I ought to have to start my car for it to run. Well, so it's the way it works. That's all Jesus is saying, folks. Jesus is not putting the guy down. That's all he's saying. He's saying if it's not working, there's only one thing that keeps it from working, and that's unbelief. So we've got to fix that. He's probably wondering, and there does seem to be a little implication here, why in the world would you come if you don't believe? Legitimate question, isn't it? We know from our experience with people dealing with sickness and, and their attitudes about healing nowadays 
that there's a lot of people that come and try things out to see if something will work. Well, it won't work because you try something out. It still takes faith. And you get a lot of people, bless their hearts, they'll go to uh, healing services or healing crusades or even come to healing school here, and they'll say, well, I had so-and-so lay hands on me. They claim to be anointed of God for healing. I had them lay hands on me, and I didn't get a thing. That just proves that they don't really have anything from God. Now, the only thing it proves is that it didn't work, and therefore, there must have been unbelief in operation. Because unbelief is the only thing that keeps it from working, folks. This is not rocket science. Jesus knew he'd be dealing with his disciples. He had to make it simple. It's just the way it works. There are laws that govern, there are spiritual laws and conditions that govern spiritual laws just like there are natural laws of physics. Now you can, you can kick against that. You can not like that all you want to, but it's still the truth. You can go up, stand up on top of the building here. And say, well, I don't think it should be that. Though I don't think that gravity should work that when I step off the edge of the building that I fall. Okay, good luck with that. There are laws of physics. There are spiritual laws too. That's how Jesus knows. So when Jesus asked the Father, how long has he been like this? I see the compassion of the Lord here. Well, goodness gracious. No wonder this guy's having a hard time. He says, it's been this way since he was a child. Verse 22, now he's, going to dis- now he's going to explain. The father should keep his mouth shut. The smartest thing for the father would be to keep his mouth shut and wait for Jesus to help him. But he doesn't. He says, it's been this way since a child. And oftentimes it throws him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have mercy on me and help me. So what is the father looking for? He's looking for Jesus' ability. Now, folks... Let me ask you a question. What kind of faith does, this t- does it take on anybody's part to say God can do anything? What kind of faith does it take to say with God all things are possible? None. Absolutely none. Because you don't even know what all things are. What does that really mean? With God all things are possible. Yep, God is the God of the impossible. What does that mean? If you don't make that personal and make it something that you can put faith in, that's an empty statement. It's true, but it's an empty statement for you. It takes no faith whatsoever to think that God can do anything. Who cares if he can do anything? What's he going to do for you? So what's he doing? He's trying to put it over in Jesus. Jesus, if you can do anything, this is all up to you now. If you can do anything, if, if you can, I don't know, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus turns it right around and puts it back in his lap. Because faith is not based on what God can do. Faith is based on what do you believe he will do. Jesus turns it right back around on him. Jesus said unto him, if you can believe. All things are possible to him that believes. Jesus does not say, yeah, I can. Don't worry. I've got the power for this, but let me tell you how it works. He didn't say that. Jesus did not give him any assurance of what he was able to do. None. Zero. Zip. Nada. 
Jesus said, it's not about what I can do. It's about what you can believe. Now, if I was the father, I'd wanted a little mini sermon right here. It wouldn't even have had to have been Jesus. I would have liked to have turned to the disciples and said, tell me what happened the last town you guys were in. Encourage me. We all want to be encouraged, don't we? Tell me. Have you ever seen anything like this before? Tell me the last person that you cast the devil out of. How'd that work? Oh, tell me something good. Surely you've got some testimonies for your next newsletter. Tell me those. Jesus didn't say a word. He said, it's not about what I can do. It's about what you can believe. Folks, if you learn to take the responsibility for healing on yourself, that's when you see God do miraculous things. This guy wants to shirk the responsibility. He wants to say, Jesus, it's all about you. Whatever you can do. And isn't that exactly where the modern day church is on the subject of healing? Well, God can do anything. He's God. He can do anything. Nothing is too hard for God. Now, we don't know for sure what he will do, but God can heal anybody under any circumstances, under any conditions. Have you ever noticed that those are the people that never get anything? Why? Because God's still in the same business that he was when Jesus was here on the earth. It's not about what God can do. It's not, God's power is not in question. The only question is, what can you believe? Now, we've already seen that Jesus said this guy has no faith. He answered him and said, oh, faithless generation, how long must I suffer you? So he's without faith. Now Jesus is demanding that he change from unbelief to faith like that. Man, that seems harsh. Unless that's possible. If it's possible, then it's not harsh. Jesus is just saying, you're going to have to get out of where you are over into where you need to be. You're going to have to get out of the unbelief and looking to my power and over into believing something in order to get results. If that's possible, if that's possible to change that fast, then Jesus is helping this guy instead of hurting him. Now, I would submit to you that most people think that's not possible. I would submit to you that most people think that faith is this long, drawn-out process that you got to dig and you got to dig and you got to dig and you got to build in your heart and build in your heart and build in your heart. And, and there's no question that that's a wonderful way to live. But if it's possible to go to unbelief to faith like that, then Jesus is trying to get him over into the place where he can get results. Folks, I would submit to you that they're at a standoff. The father is saying, this is about your ability. Jesus says, no, it's about your, your belief. Now, who is sweating in this situation? Jesus? Is Jesus wringing his hands saying, man, I sure hope he says something good next? No. Jesus is standing there just as cool as can be. No, it's not about what I can do. If you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. The responsibility is back over on the father and the father knows it. So what does the father do? Notice what a guy that has no faith does. He says, Lord, I believe. What does that tell us? It tells us he knows something about faith. 
He knows faith is exercised by the words that you speak. Which means he could have exercised faith anywhere in this story. He chose not to. Now, however, he flips it around. He says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. In other words, he's saying, I'll give you something to work with, Jesus, but I'm really going to need your help. Well, man, that's a newsflash. The guy needs Jesus' help. Who would have thought? Folks, everything you extend your faith for, you need Jesus' help. You need God's help for it, don't you? So this help mind belief, that's a given. All Jesus is looking for is faith. The only time the Bible ever talks about faith in a measure, he uses the smallest measure known to man, a mustard seed. The only time that the Bible ever speaks of faith in a measure, it speaks of the smallest measure possible. He said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you'll use that and it'll move mountains. It'll create a tree that every field, every bird of the air will come and build a nest in. The smallest faith can create the biggest results. All you got to do is get somebody to shift from unbelief to faith. It sets supernatural things in motion. So what does he do? He says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit and said unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him. And he was as one dead, insomuch that many said he is dead. That's King James English for saying a lot of people thought that he died right there on the spot. Doesn't tell us what the father thought. I wonder what the father is thinking. (laughs) Here I step over in faith. Don't tell me that the devil's not there whispering in his ear, screaming in his ear, now your son's dead. The father's at least tempted to think, well, it's better than this before when he had the seizures. At least he was alive. He looks like he's dead. Other people there thought he was dead. Jesus reached over and lifted him up by the hand and he was fine. How did this guy go from unbelief to faith like that? Turn with me over to Mark chapter 11. Let me tell you a story. I went to uh, Bible school in 1980. Started, uh, um, well, went to Bible school, started attending healing school. In those days, uh, healing school was at 2.30 in the afternoon. There was a prayer school just before it and uh, healing school uh, after that. And Brother Hagen was doing the majority of the teaching in healing school. And it started at 2.45 in the afternoon, I think it was. And and a lot of times we'd go till 5 o'clock, sometimes as late as 6 or 6.30. And and it was primarily for two reasons. It was for those that needed healing. People came from all over the country, even other countries, foreign countries, when they heard of what was going on, to receive their healing. And then there were students like myself that um, uh, that Brother Hagen used as an opportunity to teach people on how to minister healing and things about healing and stuff like that. And um, so being in a healing school, the, what I mean by that, the Lord told me to treat healing school like it was part of school. And so I got a job working a graveyard shift and so I could go to healing school in the afternoons and the evenings. And, uh, and, and as a result, Brother Hagen told a lot of personal things, a lot of personal stories and, and things like that, that, uh, I had not, at least at that time, had not heard in any other, any other settings. And there were a lot of Brother Hagen's stories and a lot of Brother Hagen's experiences that just flabbergasted me. I mean, I came out of the Baptist church, you know? Spent a little bit of time in the Pentecostal church, but those Pentecostals, man, the, the, the Assembly of God church that I went to before I came to, to Rainbow, they didn't know anything about the Bible. They were all about emotions and, you know, excitement and stuff like that. They, they knew nothing about the Bible. 
At least they didn't tell me anything. And so when I got to uh, to Raymond, started hearing Brother Hagin teach the Word, and, and I followed along in the, the, the Bible that I had, and, and those things that he was saying, the Bible said they really were in there. It was a shock to me. I mean, I thought, dear Lord, why has nobody told me this? I'm 25 years old. I've grown up in the church. I've been a Christian almost all my life. Why in the world has nobody told me this stuff? Made me mad. I was mad at everybody that didn't tell me. And so there were a lot of things that, that I heard Brother Hagin say. I heard him talk about his uh, his conversion experience. How that he was born with a deformed heart and he was on a sick bed. By the time he was 16 years old, he was bedfast and, and uh, couldn't couldn't get up, couldn't was partially paralyzed and and uh, had limited movement of his of his hands and his arms. And uh, and and he gave the experience of, of him dying. He said that uh, death came in and took hold of him. And, and he, I mean, this was real life experience for him. He went into vivid detail about what it felt like and what death, what it was like when death took hold of him and, and that kind of stuff. He talked about going down because he wasn't saved. He didn't know he wasn't saved until this happened. He'd grown up in the church. He'd grown to Baptist church with his, uh, some of his family members. He had heard about Jesus. He knew about Jesus. He knew about Jesus on the cross, but he'd never asked Jesus into his heart. And so when he died, when his spirit departed from his body, he went down. He said he was going down like you're going down a mine shaft or down a well. He said he was going at a rapid descent. He said down at the bottom of that, that hole, this big blackness, he said, I could see flickering lights. He said, I got closer and closer, and he said, I saw that that was the flames of hell. He said, I started backpedaling, trying to slow down my descent. He said he went down straight to begin with, and then as he as he saw the gates of hell, he said instead of going straight down, he said it was kind of an incline, and he started going slower and slower. Well, he got there. He said he didn't look around. He was his, he said his eyes were transfixed on the fires of hell, but he said he knew that there was some creature that was waiting there at the gates of hell for him. And as he got there, this creature put his hand on his arm. He said I didn't look at him. He said, but I knew it was there. And he said, I felt his hand on my arm. He said, I was just about to go into those gates. He said, the gates opened up for me. He said, I was just about to go through those gates. He said, I knew if I go through those gates, I'm done for. That's it. He said, all of a sudden, there was a voice. He said, I don't know what the voice said. It was a man's voice. He said, I don't know what that voice said because it wasn't the English language. He said, when that voice spoke, he said, the whole of hell shook. He said, this creature turned turned loose of my arm. He said, I started going back up. He said, that happened three times in rapid succession. He said, I came back to my body and then I went back down again. He said, the third time, he said, I came back up. He said, well, he even said this on one of the earlier times. I'm not sure it was the first or second time. But he started going down. He's thinking, I'm going the wrong way. I belong to the church. He started crying out, Lord, I belong to the church. Belonging to a church doesn't get you into heaven. The third time when this happened, this voice shouted, this voice spoke and the gates of hell shook. He started coming back up. He said he started praying. He's praying before he ever gets to his body. He's coming back up toward the earth and he starts praying, Lord, save me. I don't want to go to hell. Save me. He said he saw himself come up on the front porch of that little frame house that he was in. He saw himself lying on the bed. He said he slipped into his mouth like you slip your foot into a shoe. He said, as soon as I slipped into my body, my voice picked up in the middle of my prayer. He said, I started shouting. He said, they told me that you could hear me from three or four miles away. I started shouting, Jesus, come into my heart and save me. And he did. He was saved. Well, I didn't have a conversion experience like that. Did you? (laughs) 
cry. I just didn't have that experience. I'm not sad I didn't. But I didn't have that kind of experience. I just got saved kneeling down by the bed with my mom. Just saying a little prayer. No going to hell. No seeing the flames of hell. Not feeling some creature with his hand on my arms or anything like that. No voice that shook hell. I just got saved by praying, asking Jesus into my heart. I'd hear things like that and man... It made me aware of spiritual things. I started thinking, wow, hell is real. Then Brother Hagin would talk about going to heaven, seeing heaven. I think, wow, heaven's real too. Thrilled me, excited me. Then I heard Brother Hagin tell about some of the rest of the things that weren't so exciting. He said, now I'm saved. I come back into my body. He said, I'm saved. My prayer picks up in mid, mid shout. He said, now I get saved. He said, but my body is still sick. Now, you'd think somebody that had an experience like that, as soon as he'd get back to his body and get saved, he'd be healed, wouldn't you? Especially if God had a plan for his ministry and a plan for his life like Brother Hagin had and affected so many people with the millions and millions of books and tapes and other things, the teachings that he had. Affected so many people like myself that went out and started churches and affect other people. You'd think if God had a plan for somebody's life like that, that he'd do something special and something extra to get him healed, wouldn't you think? He didn't. Why? Because he sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Folks, nobody gets a pass. Everybody is responsible for accepting and replying the word in their own lives. I don't care how good dear sister Susie or whoever it was that died of cancer was. They're responsible to the word of God just like you and I are. So Brother Higgins now, he, now he says, I, that stopped me from being afraid of death. I'm not afraid of dying anymore. He said, I couldn't care less. He said before, he said, I was holding on to the bedpost. I was doing everything I can to hold on to life. He said, not anymore. He said, I didn't care. He said, I know if I'm dying, if I die now, I'm going to heaven. Jesus is living on the inside of me now. I'm not worried about the gates of hell any longer. I couldn't care less. He said, the devil was tormenting me before that, tormenting me with the idea of killing me. He said, now the devil tried to bring the temptation to die. And he said, I don't care. Let her go. Well, he realized He's not going to die now. So what's he going to do? He's going to try to get his healing. So he started taking the scripture and started trying to apply the word of God. He saw what, what Mark chapter 11 says. He realized that just by the inward witness, he realized the answer was in Mark chapter 11. He saw the story in Mark chapter 5, the woman with the issue of blood, where Jesus said, daughter, your faith has made you whole. And he said this out loud. He said, Lord, if her faith made her whole, then my faith can make me whole. And the Lord spoke to him about that. He said, that's right. He said, people say that uh, churches preach that healing's been done away with. He said, have you ever heard a church preach that faith's been done away with? Well, no, I've never heard that. He said, that's right, and you never will. Because if faith's done, been done away with, there is no church. Nobody can be saved. Because you can only be saved by faith. So if her faith made her whole, your faith can make you whole. Man, he started digging then. Now, his paralysis is increasing. He has limited movement, even more limited movement now than he had a few months before. So he can only read for a few minutes at a time, and that's only at a certain part of the day, in the cool of the day, and, and you know, before things get too wound up. So he's, he's at, a, at a great disadvantage, much more disadvantage than you might be, no matter where you're picking up your situation. At a great disadvantage. But he somehow came to the realization if faith is the thing that made her whole, then Mark chapter 11 and the, the description that Jesus gave, the definition of Jesus gave about faith is his answer. So he opened his Bible to Mark chapter 11 and stayed there week after week after week. 
He read from verse 22 down through verse 24, which says, have faith in God. Jesus answering said, have faith in God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore, verse 24 is talking about faith in prayer. It's talking about the prayer of faith. Therefore, I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. He started praying. He said, Lord, I desire a well body. I desire healing from the deformed heart. I desire healing from the blood disease. He went through the whole list of things that the doctors told him was wrong with him. He said, I desire healing from all of these things. And you said, if I believed that I received my healing, I'd have it. So he'd pray. He'd get all excited. He'd pray. Lord, I believe I received my healing. Then a little bit later, he'd check his body and there wasn't any difference. So then he'd go to crime. You can see he wasn't in faith. He didn't know enough about faith. Brother Hagin said, you know, people hear my story. And he said, uh, he, I heard him say this over and over again. He said, people will hear about me being healed, and, you know, raised up from the deathbed. He said, people think that I knew everything about faith. He said, I saw enough about faith that would be like a light coming through a keyhole. That's how much light I had on the subject of faith and healing. He went back and forth like this for weeks. He'd pray, ask God for his healing, get all excited and said, yeah, 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 I've got it, I've got it, I've got it, yeah. The Bible says I can have it, the Bible says it's mine, it's mine, I've got it. Then the next morning he'd wake up and his body would be in the same condition as it was. And he'd spend that day crying. Oh, Lord, what's wrong? Why isn't this working? Why can't I get relief from this condition? It's not fair that I should live my life. I've never had a childhood, never been able to run and play like the other boys. It's just not fair. Life's dealt me an unfair hand. You work up a good cry about some of that stuff, can't you? Finally, one day, he'd, he'd, he'd spend a day in faith, spend a day in unbelief. Spend a day praying, spend the next day crying. He said, I was going back and forth. He said, finally, finally, I took my Bible, laying in my bed. He said, I took my Bible and I said, Lord, if you appeared to me and said, Kenneth Hagin, your problem is you don't believe. He said, with all sincerity, he said, with all due respect, Lord, I'd have to say you're a liar. I do believe. And he said, the Lord spoke to him just on the inside. The Lord spoke to him and he said this. He said, it's one of the greatest lessons he ever learned about faith. He said, you do believe all right as far as you know. Here's the lesson. Faith is based on knowledge. That's why faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Because the knowledge of the, when the word comes, knowledge comes and the faith to act on that knowledge is present. So the Lord said, you do believe all right as far as you know. But then here's what the Lord said to him. Brother Hagin was using verse 24, Mark 11, 24, as his stand, his, his foundation for believing. He said, but the last part of that verse is true. Just as true as the rest of it. And then the Lord quoted the last part of the verse, and you shall have them. And you shall have them. Now, folks, I got to tell you, in my faith battles, well, let me, let me preface this, preface my statement by saying this. God knows how to reach every person where they are. Because if he said to me, the last part of verse 24 is just as true as the rest of it, that wouldn't mean a thing to me. But it did to Brother Hagin. He knew exactly what it was, and it was the answer that he needed. 
He said, when the Lord said the last part of that verse is just as true as the rest of it, and you shall have them. Brother Hagin said, instantly I saw where I was missing it. Instantly I saw where I was missing it. He said, I was trying to have it and then believe it. He said, I saw for the first time ever, I saw I've got to believe I receive healing from the deformed heart. I've got to believe that I receive healing from the blood disease. I've got to believe that I receive healing from the other things, the other problems, before I have them. He's trying to keep it all together. He'd say, I believe I received my healing and then check his body to see if he had it. He said that was the answer for him. So he said, and this is happening in a matter of moments. He just went from crying that morning to complaining to God, saying, if you showed up and told me I didn't believe, I'd have to call you a liar because I do believe. Now the Lord says you do believe according to as much as you know or as far as you know. But the last part of that verse is just as true as the rest of it. And you shall have them. Instantly, Brother Hagin said, I saw it. I've got to believe I receive it before I have it. So he said, here's what I did. Nobody's in the room with him. He said, I declare before heaven and whatever angels may be present and hell and whatever demons may be present. I declare that I believe I received my healing from the deformed heart. In the name of Jesus. I believe I receive healing from the blood disease in the name of Jesus. I believe I received my healing from, and he named whatever other things, and he had a whole long list of things. And then finally he said, and I believe I received my healing from any and every other problem I might have that I don't know about. In the name of Jesus. And that was it. He didn't check his body. He didn't look for anything. He said there was an impression. He said something on the inside of me said, now begin to praise God. He said, I'd never seen anybody praise God before in my life. I didn't know what that meant. He said by that time of day, he said his hands were, you know, had a little bit of movement in his hands, but just very little. And he said he just kind of propped his hands up, his elbows up on the pillows and kind of leaned them back. His pillows were were on an incline. He wasn't laying flat. He was kind of propped up in the bed. So he kind of threw his elbows back like that. And this is as far as he can get his hands up. And he says, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. I believe I received my healing. Thank you for healing from the blood disease. Thank you for healing from the deformed heart. He spent about three or four minutes doing that. And finally, it kind of died down. And the Lord said, now you believe you receive your healing. He said, yep, I sure do. He said, then get up. Well, people ought to be up this time of day. Folks, we're talking about a matter of less than 10 minutes where he's gone to crying. Why isn't it working? To the Lord saying, get up then. Now, can I ask you a question? Hadn't he done enough by that point? Why didn't the power of God just pick him up? See, that's the way people want it to work, isn't it? I don't want to have to do anything. Especially if I'm going to all the trouble to believe God to begin with. Let God do the work. The Lord said, get up. How's a paralyzed guy get up? I've never been paralyzed. I don't know what it's like. How's a paralyzed guy get up? He said he looked down at his legs. He said, I've been bedfast now for about eight or nine months. He said, my legs are just twigs. He said, I'm wearing pajamas. He said, the pajama bottoms are just swallowing him up. He said, so I reached down with the limited movement he had. I reached down with one hand and grabbed that pajama leg and kind of lifted it up by the, by the cloth and swung it out over, over the side of the bed. He said, then I reached over and grabbed the other leg by the, by the pants leg. He said, I reached up, threw that one over there too. Crossed his legs just like this. He said, now I'm sliding off the bed. He said, I reached out with this arm and I hooked it 
around the, the, the bedpost. He said, all the time I'm sliding down. As I'm sliding down, I'm rolling over, so I grabbed it with both bedposts, or both arms. Grabbed the bedpost with both arms. Sliding down, landed flat in the floor. Propped up a little bit, holding on with two arms. What do you do? Well, that'd be a good place to have a good cry, wouldn't it? That'd be a great place to say, well, I guess this isn't working after all. Lord, you let me down. You know what he did? He said the same thing that he said before. He said, I declare before heaven and the angels of God and hell and whatever demons may be present in this room that I believe I received my healing from the deformed heart. I believe I received healing from the blood disease. I believe I received healing. goes through the whole list and any other problems that I might not even know that I've got in the name of Jesus. He said, when I said that, he said, something hit me in the top of the head. He said, I described it years ago. At this point in time, he was telling the story many, many years later, 50-something years later maybe, or even more than that, I guess. He said, I first described it as it felt like a pitcher of warm honey hit me in the top of the head. He said, I've never been able to improve on that description. He said, it hit me in the top of the head. He said, it was warm on top of my head. He said, then it began to ooze down over my face, just real slow. He said, it began to ooze down to my neck, down my shoulders. When it got to my chest, he said it started hitting some of the paralyzed parts of my body. He said, by the time it got to my waist and my legs, he said, it felt like somebody was sticking a million needles in me. He said, I've never had anything hurt so good in my life. He said, when you don't have any feeling, any feeling feels good. He said, within a matter of moments, he's standing upright in his room with his hands lifted and raised toward God. How did he go from unbelief, complaining about why it's not working and why God's not doing his part, to being healed, standing in his room, in just a matter of moments. How'd that work? Same way it works for Mark chapter 9. It's the same thing, folks. It's the same exact thing. Now he said the devil came almost almost instantly and said even before he got out of the bed, even before he threw his legs off over in the bed, after he declared that he was sealed, he believed he received the sealing, the devil was right there. He said it was a voice that came to his mind, not from his mind, but to his mind. He said that voice said, now you've gone to lying. He said, I'm not a liar. The devil said, don't you know that the Bible says that all liars will have their part in the lake of fire? You've gone to lying. Brother Hagin said, I'm not lying about anything, Mr. Devil. That lake of fire is for you and your bunch. And the devil answered him back. He said, yeah, you've gone to lying. You said you're healed and you know you're not. Brother Hagin said, I didn't say I'm healed. He said, I believe I received my healing, just like Jesus told me to. That's what the man did in Mark chapter 9. Jesus said, all you got to do is believe. All you got to do is change that unbelief to faith. He said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I don't care where you are. You can change the unbelief into faith and get miraculous results. Miraculous results. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you sent your word and healed us. Father, you know where these folks are spiritually. I don't. You know what their situations are. You know what they're facing. You know the hindrances that they might have to believing you. But there is not one person here or that hears this message anytime now or in the future that has an excuse to not believe your word. They may have reasons they think that they can't. 
you know that they can. And so do they. Thank you, Father, that you sent your word and healed us and delivered us from our destructions. Thank you that there's nothing that's too hard for you. And even as Jesus said, because we believe, all things are possible to us as believers. Oh, Father, what a privilege it is to walk in your word. What a privilege it is to walk in wisdom and walk in divine health all the days of our lives. But, oh, Father, there are also people here that need to turn things around. Thank you that you're the God of the turnaround. And all it takes is faith on our part, a willingness to believe. We don't have to have the answers. All we have to do is take a stand on your word. Why don't you stand together? Let me lead you into confession. Close your eyes and raise one hand toward heaven because that's where your help comes from. Say this after me. According to God's word, Jesus took my infirmities and bore my sicknesses. I choose to believe God's word. Therefore, I believe I receive healing from the top of my head to the soles of my feet in the name of Jesus. According to the word, because I believe that I received my healing, God said that I shall have that healing. In the name of Jesus, I declare by faith, healing is mine. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your goodness. <laughs> you sent your word and healed us and delivered us from our destructions. Oh, that men would praise you for your goodness and for your wonderful works to the children of men. Wonderful works to the children of men. Wonderful. <laughs> glory's here the glory of God's here it's hanging right over your head it's our faith that brought it in (laughs) oh Lord we thank you for your goodness for your wonderful works unto us your wonderful works yep the presence of God is here to enforce that which you extended your faith for in the name of Jesus Reach up and take what you need. By faith. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of Jesus. There's somebody that's got a problem. Some kind of, uh, it's not a kidney, but there's a problem down right in here. I don't know what that is. But there's somebody that's got that problem. God's healing you of that right now. I don't, I don't know what that is. I, it's, it's not a hernia. I'm not sure what that is. But there's something right down in here. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Yeah. And, and whoever that is, it's, it's right down on this side. It's on the right side, right down here. Just below your pant line. I think it's a woman. But whoever that is, the Lord's, I heard these words in my spirit. This is just to show you how much I love you. 
This is to honor your face, but to show you how much I love you. So whoever that is, take hold of that. It still takes faith to take hold of it. Just say, I receive. Just on the inside of you, I receive. I receive. I receive. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be your name, Lord Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. I heard the Lord say this further. There's nothing that's too hard for me. There's nothing I won't do for you. Just reach out in simple faith. It's not a hard thing. Just reach out in simple faith. Trust me. Stand upon the truth of my word. There's nothing I won't do for you. (laughs) Oh, Lord, you're so good. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness. And for his wonderful works to the children of men. Wonderful works. Wonderful works to the children of men. Hallelujah. Lord, is there anything else you want to do before we go? We don't want to get in a hurry. Miss out on anything that you have planned. I keep looking at people and I get in words. And I don't know if it's because I know your situation or if it's something that uh, (laughs) is happening so fast. I can't tell. I look at some of you and I hear divine strength. I look at others of you. And I see the word perseverance. There's a, there's a lady. There's a blonde-headed lady right back here. There's a word perseverance hanging over your head. Perseverance. Don't give up. Don't care what it looks like. Don't give up. Perseverance. That's where your answer is. It's in perseverance. <laughs> I love this. Smith Wigglesworth said, I'd rather have the power of God on me for 10 minutes than own the world and have a fence around it. I think I agree. Folks, we're coming into a day where the power of God, the manifested power of God, the manifested presence of God will be commonplace. It won't be an occasional thing. It'll be a continual thing. Signs and wonders and healing miracles will become commonplace because these are the days of the glory of the Lord. Is that it, Lord?
Lord, we worship you. We thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for meeting us here tonight. Thank you for the anointing that's upon your word. Thank you, Lord, for your love for your people. <laughs> thank you that you sent your word and healed us. And delivered us from our destructions. We will praise you, Lord, for your goodness. And for your wonderful works unto us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's been good to be together. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Take this presence of the Lord with you wherever you go this week. Amen. You're dismissed.